Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Tim and Julie Harris, and it is Real Estate Coaching. This is our podcast, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different, a little bit off the menu, which hopefully everyone will enjoy. And first, I'm going to introduce two very special guests who have a company called Fortified Risk. You can see it at fortifiedrisk.com. And these guys are super awesome. We're going to start with Jake Williams. They're both former Navy SEALs with over 35 years of experience in international, domestic, public, and private security services. So let's start with Jake, who was honorably discharged from the US military in 2017 after 12 years of service in the Naval Special Operations community. Jake served at SEAL Team 7 and was an instructor at basic underwater demolition SEAL training and SEAL qualification training. During his tenure, Jake conducted five combat deployments in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. His many combat commendations include the Joint Service Commendation Medal with Combat Valor, the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Combat Valor, the Army Commendation Medal, and numerous other joint and individual awards. He was awarded the Admiral Ricketts Award for Inspirational Leadership. As a SEAL student, he was selected by his peers and instructor as class honorman. After transitioning out of the Navy, Jake has led large-scale construction and development projects, advised AI companies, and co-founded a security consulting company that works with both the public and private sectors. He also serves on multiple boards of veteran transition programs. He's a native of the San Fernando Valley of California, and he enlisted in the Navy in 2005, graduated from basic underwater demolition SEAL training in November of 2006, holds a BS degree in strategic studies and defense analysis from Norwich University and a master of business for veterans from the University of Southern California. He currently resides in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and three children. So that is all about Jake. We're gonna talk about Robin next. Kind of makes normal bios seem just like kind of lame. Oh, I feel like I'm about a half inch (laughs) tall. I'm feeling about a half inch tall, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was doing the math and I was trying to think where we were in our careers at the same age that Jake was. I'm guessing Jake's probably five or six years younger than us. And I think you and I were still figuring out how to fill out real estate contracts. Exactly, I know, I know. (laughs) Keeping things in perspective. Yeah. All right, so Robin retired from the US military in 2018 after 20 years of service in the Naval Special Operations community. Robin served at SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1, SEAL Team 5, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, and instructor duty at SEAL Qualification Training. During his tenure, Robin conducted 11 combat deployments in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and several other missions worldwide. His many combat uh, commendations include the Silver Star Medal, two Bronze Star Medals with Combat Valor, the Purple Heart, three Joint Service Commendation Medals with Combat Valor, three Navy and Marine Commendation Medals with Combat Valor, two Presidential Unit Citations, and numerous other joint and individual awards. Shortly after retirement, Robin co-founded a security consulting company that works with both public and private sectors. He also volunteers his time with veteran-focused nonprofits. Robin is a native of Pasadena, California. He enlisted in the Navy in 1998 and graduated from basic underwater demolition SEAL training 
in October of 99. Robin holds a BS degree in strategic studies and defense analysis from Norwich University, and he currently resides in Nashville, Tennessee with wife and son. So that's a little bit about Robin and Jake. Well, so guys, I'll turn it over to you guys. <laughs> thank you very much for being our guest today on the podcast. Um, we are, very, it's funny, I know our podcast listeners, this podcast will probably have 25,000, 30,000 downloads. I know they're going to love the, what we're going to be talking about and sharing, mostly because this is completely out of our wheelhouse. Uh, we, you know, this is a, I guess what I'm saying is this is a real honor to have both of you guys on and thank you for the service to our country. And, and we mean that it's, I mean, truly guys, we're beside yeah, ourselves you. that, that your guests on our show. So that's yeah, pretty, pretty incredible to, to both of you. Um, so we, uh, absolutely our honor. So we do have a, uh, some questions and I send you guys these questions ahead of time. I'm not sure. And we have we, your questions. As well. I'm not sure if we'll get through all these questions or if we'll just, you know, if you guys want to drill down on maybe a few of them that you think will encompass, um, you know, however, whatever we need to do this. And I would really like to talk about, I'm excited to talk about uh, fortified risk, the company you guys are involved in. Um, that's really exciting and interesting and something uh, a lot of people, when I was reading some of the notes about what you guys offer, I'm going to turn the air conditioning back on. Yeah. <laughs> we just got back from the gym. <laughs> and we live in the Caribbean, so it heats up like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're like in a microwave. Um, so let's just start off with the first question. And by the way, listeners, if the audio quality is a little bit different on a podcast, it's because this is also being recorded for Zoom. So this podcast is also going to be on Zoom. Um, and you can obviously then watch the interview live and the audio quality won't be as good as our normal studio. Um, so please don't uh, discount the quality of the content because the audio quality isn't necessarily where it should be. So Julie, you can go on with the first question. Yes, well, I think that so many of us admire Navy SEALs and of course our friends in the military. But the question is, how do you actually decide to become a SEAL? <laughs> how does that thought process happen? Whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Jake, wanna, Yeah, I'm older, so I'll go first. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know it's an it's a it's an interesting question. Even even as a child, as a young child, I always had a desire to serve. I wasn't certain what capacity it would be in, but I always had this strong attraction to serving serving our country. My family was involved in a really violent crime when I was a young child, and it really um, if molded who I was. All I ever wanted to do was protect people. I wanted to help people and protect people. And as I matured, I read everything I could about uh, special operations. And really the one that stuck out to me was the SEAL teams because of the I, my affinity to the ocean. I love the ocean. Not only is it cathartic, but it is untamed and it is, it's a beast and I, and I love the ocean. And so it was just kind of a natural progression for me. Um, I really wanted to be a SEAL and I also really wanted to protect our way of life. Everything that we do, I love so much about the United States of America and the freedoms we have. And I just wanted to um, maintain that. And I thought the best way to do that is to join a special operations unit. And then again, choose the one that is close to the water because I enjoy surfing and I love the ocean. That's Robin, really did you, were you in the Navy first and then became a SEAL or did you just, yeah. just, no, I, I joined the, the Navy in 1998 with the specific intent of going to basic underwater demolition seal training. So I, I literally, and things have changed a little bit and I don't want to convolute it, but like you go to boot camp and then yesteryear you went to what was called an A school that was like this specific job in the Navy. And then you went to BUDS and I did that exact pathway. So I was 
no time in the regular Navy or the fleet, we call it. I spent just a little bit, just that little initial, initial portion in boot camp and then A school. And then I was at BUDS and straight through BUDS and in the SEAL teams the, my entire career. That's what's really interesting about the SEALs is that, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but you can basically qualify, hypothetically assume you qualify, you make it through Navy base, uh, you know, uh, boot we camp. We can go when you're 18. Can't and, you? and then you can just yeah. go right to this. You can just write. But if you do qualify, if you do try to be a SEAL and you don't make it past BUDS, then you're on a ship. Is that basically how it works? That's right. So that's really good motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. I need to see. Yeah, I need to see. How about how about you, uh, Jake. Jake? Sorry. Similar at a young age, I had a I had a desire to serve. I I realized that we just we live in this awesome country. You know, I had grandparents, World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, just kind of family that fought during that time. And I always had this longing desire to protect, to defend, to serve. And I was a I was a young kid in my front yard playing you know finger quotes army with my brothers, and my neighbor across the street was going to the naval academy at the time. He was about ten years older than me. He's like, "What are you guys doing?" And we're like, "Oh, we're playing playing army." He's like, "Oh, you know the navy has the seals," and I had never heard of that beforehand. I was probably eight or nine years old, and so from like that day forward, I you know went to the library, checked out a handful of books, and started reading. And similar to Robin, it was like I love the water. I wanted to be challenged and I wanted to protect and defend. So at, at that early age, I geared my life towards being a SEAL. So what are the differences between uh, Navy SEALs and the other special uh, special forces guys? Because there's every Air Force, Army, they all have Marines, of course, they have. So what are, what's the main difference? If someone's listening right now and, and they're ambitious and they're the right age and have the right yeah. mindset, how do they decide which direction to go? Yeah, it's a good... It's a good question. Go ahead, Jake. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, chime in where you want there. I really we're we're given different mission set capabilities, right? Naval Special Warfare or NSW or Naval Special Operations Forces. We're really specialized in that maritime component, right? Where anything maritime, anything on the water that comes up, we're supposed to um, be the experts at that and take it. Um, Green Berets, or also known as Special Forces in the Army they are real specialized in like unconventional warfare um, and, and going in and do that type of stuff. And Air Force has combat controllers or PJs, pararescue men, and they really specialize in high-end special operations, medicine, um, battlefield trauma, or close air support, guiding in aircraft. They, there's been so much overlap over the years also, right? Because, and Robin can probably share to this as well, but when 9-11 happened and, and the SEAL teams were going into Iraq and Afghanistan, it was like, well, don't you guys only operate in the water? And it was like, well, actually, sea, air, and land, you know, SEAL is an acronym for sea, air, and land. And so those are all the, the environments that we operate in, that we infiltrate in. Um, so there is an overlap. But Robin, go ahead and chime in if you have anything else to add there. I mean, Jake, you hit it really well. The, the SEAL teams are just the maritime component of Special Operations Command. So SOCOM or Special Operations Command, it's the home of all the Special Operations community. And theoretically or doctrinally, like we all historically had areas of operation or a very set mission set. And prior to 9-11, you know, the, the SEAL team, it was like three miles from the hinterland, from the, the, the waterline into whatever country, wherever we are. And that's literally where, where we were supposed to be working. 
and we just happened to be pretty good at everything, like all the other guy, guys and gals in special operations community. And there was a lot of work to be done. So that's why where we are now and all over the, the, the globe, all special operations are in all these. They're not limited by their kind of geographical definition, you know, historically maritime. Um, yeah. But so we do have to, everything we do, we have to train to come from and return to the water so our gear may be a little bit different than maybe a, a army component that has a similar capability. Their radios may not be as waterproof. Ours have to be diveable to two or three fathoms, uh, um, you know, to launch and recover from submarines, stuff like that. Our our optics on our on our weapons need to be diveable to certain depths. But uh, really, we all kind of do the same stuff, and everyone's actually in SOCOM. Everyone's really good at what they do, so it creates a lot of competition. Um, yeah, which competition makes you really good. Well, speaking of competition, tell us a little bit about your buds training. I think everyone is fascinated with that. And I know for me, just keeping it super practical because cannot relate in any way. But, you know, like when I'm on the treadmill and I think I'm going to die, I think I think about you guys, like not even <laughs> remotely in the same stratosphere. So tell us a little bit about buds or maybe a favorite buds story. I, I read something uh, researching prior to our uh, meeting today that um, there's the ringing the bell and a, a, a quote, I can't, I don't know exactly who said it, but uh, you don't want to ring the bell in life. You always know you can, but don't ring the bell. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about your bud's experience. Turn you a little bit closer because air conditioning. Yeah. Well, okay, first I'll tell you what, what buds is for. And Jake, again, please chime in. Um, Cause Jake and I both worked as uh, instructors at the ends of our careers. So we got to see kind of the 360 degree approach to this thing. Not only were we students on the receiving end of pain and suffering, but um, it's not so much supposed to be pain and suffering. You're, the intent is to find a man with grit. Find this person, it's, it was uh, a char characteristic. We're like, what are we looking for? Grit, you're looking for a person that won't quit when it's tough, when it's cold, when it's wet, when it's miserable. So really that's what BUDS is. It's not a ton of training. It's putting folks like ourselves in really challenging positions and um, challenging in mentally. It's just cold and wet. BUDS is really low tech. There's no technology there. It's, a, it's, it's sand and the ocean and wind and push-ups and pull-ups. It doesn't require computer chips and uh, technology, it requires the will to succeed and the will to fight under really challenging circumstances. All, all it takes to, to make you miserable is water and time. Regardless of how warm or cold the water is, I will make you cold or they will make us cold in a certain amount of time. And that's like when you're miserable and cold, the first thing you want to do is get warm. And that's where you find if you have that grit or that will. Um, Jake, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. But really, that was, that's what the intent there is, is to find a tough, gritty person. And then we'll train you after. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Buds is about six months long and it is a grind from start to finish. It's hard to get there. And then when you're in there, it's a challenge to stay in. And it is, it is a grind from start to finish. A, a question I get of a lot from friends, family, just people that are like, oh, tell me about Buds. They always want to know like, what was the hardest thing or what were some of the hardest things you had to do in Buds? And and as I reflect on it more over the years, the answer I've come up with is like, not, there's not one thing that's like, oh my gosh, that was, was so challenging or that's what, that's what made it so hard. It's like, it's like the ingredients of buds making whatever it is you're going for in the kitchen. It, it, it's all of it put together 
that just make it incredibly challenging because you're operating for six months on very little sleep. Um, you do eat well. That's one thing you have to be packed full of calories to, to, to sustain, but you operate on very little sleep with very short timelines to accomplish like big, big tasks. And when you add all that, that up, like Robin was saying, no, no sleep, you're wet, you're cold, you're always sandy. So you're always getting chafed and just, it is the ultimate grind to see if when it really gets bad, if, if you can stick it out. And I know as a student, you're just like, well, I'm going to put one foot in front of the next and keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, in life, it's kind of like if you, I saw classmates of mine and then also later as an instructor, people get overwhelmed really easily. It's like you throw this elephant in front of them and now they have to, they feel like they got to eat it all at once. And, and then people start quitting, people start falling. But, but it's like in those challenging moments, that's when you say, hey, I, I'm just going to go from, I'm just going to go uh, one foot in front of the other. And then before you know it, you've, you've made it another hundred yards and you've made another mile. And then you're like, you know what? I'm just going to make it to the next meal. Okay, I've made it to the next meal. Look, I'm still around. I'm going to make it through the next evolution. And you just go and go. Um, I think part of my paradigm shift was in training and, and telling you guys about it as an instructor you know, we, we'd been at war when I started being an instructor, we'd been at war for about 15 years. And so like Robin was saying, we're looking for guys with grit. I was, as I'm looking at guys in, in first phase going through hell week and all of this incredibly difficult training, I'm like, is this guy worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder with my best friends, my brothers that are still going down range and still fighting our enemies? Like, can I put my stamp of approval knowing that he will give it everything? to protect my buddy's back. And that was really what it, what it came down to there. And that's what we were looking for in Bud's training. You mind if we drill down on that a little bit? Cause that's sure. very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, so what are the traits? Like when you're, when you're, you know, when you're trying to study that guy to decide whether yeah. or not you want to give him your seal of approval, no pun yeah. intended. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. How does that work? What are the qualities you look for? Is it just an intuitive feel? It's um, it, it's a self selflessness is really what it boils down to. It's a selflessness because we do so many team building. You never think of it as a, you never call it team building in buds, but all of these team oriented exercises, right? Where you're either under a boat, under a, a log, like a big telephone pole, if you've seen that stuff. And, and as, a, as an instructor, what we noticed was typically the way, a very common exercise in buds is what we call, um, like boats on heads or you're carrying these these rafts they're like big river raft boats that are designed to hold six to seven people they weigh about 250 pounds and they're inflatable and a lot of times you carry them around on your head and you're you all are you're grouped with people that are equal height so everyone's carrying about an equal amount of weight and you run for miles and miles with these things on your head um you kind of take them everywhere with you in the first four weeks of training we would run these races where you have to, um, you know, your boat crew of six or seven guys have to keep up. As soon as one person starts to say, oh, my head hurts, my neck hurts, or my legs are tired, I can't keep up, like that boat, it can be so contagious and that boat just like completely falls apart. And so what we noticed was like when the guys next to them were more concerned, when, when, when you as an individual were more concerned about the other guys in your boat crew and performing for them and putting out for them so that you're carrying an equal amount of weight on your head, those boat crews thrived. They performed really well. Uh, and it's, it's, it sounds profound, but it's also so simple, right? Like if I look out for the guy next to me and I don't worry so much about myself, 
we ended up we ended up succeeding. And so boiling down to selflessness. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's really what they they try to instill in you, the instructor cadre. As a student, it's it's not about you. It's about the team. We always talk team gear, personal gear. You know, like at the end of the day, you take care of all of our gear and then you take care of yourself. You eat last. You get water last. You take care of us now because the mission requires that boat. It Just for training, that is mission critical equipment, that boat. And now it resonates into everything else down, down the line in combat, if it's a weapon system or an aircraft or whatever, but you take care of that equipment because you're taking care of the team. The team requires that. Take care of your shoes and and, and your personal gear later on. But that's, that's stuff that you take care of after we've taken care of the team and taking care of all of us. I, I think one other piece to it too is um, it's it stand positive, really, really, you know, calm breeds calm, fear breeds fear, panic breeds panic, all of those things build on itself. And the, the job is challenging. So it's keeping a good head on your shoulders and staying calm and cool under pressure, under gunfire, because that resonates. So, if it, and again, it's just take it all the way back to the boats. If, if I'm cool and calm, then Jake stays cool and calm. And we're all putting out together. You actually, you, you create a very unique sense of humor amongst each other that creates this esprit de corps that I've never seen anywhere else. You may joke about some of the most macabre stuff in, the, in ever, but it's just, it's motivation to keep you going. On the flip side, if I start telling Jake how bad my neck hurts and how tired I am and how hungry I am, all it does is, is it's, it's snowballs. Everyone recognizes how tired they are. Everyone recognizes how cold they are and how chafed they are. Um, and then you start falling apart and then your team starts falling back and everything in Buds is a competition. So if, if you aren't first, I mean, I was going to quote Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> but really, if you're not, if you're not winning, there's going to be some repercussions to, to, to failure. And that a lot of times involves getting back in that Pacific Ocean. Um, and that's not a whole lot of fun when you're already borderline hypothermic. I'm sorry, Jake. I was going to say there's a common term we use. It pays to be a winner. Um, And, and that's something that gets, starts getting reinforced day one. It pays to be a winner, whatever, you know, as a team, it pays to be a winner. So bud sounds like it's mostly psychological testing in essence. And I'm, I'm curious as, as instructors, since you guys are both buds instructors, do you, so the things you just said, do you tell the, uh, you know, the, the guys trying to become seals, the guys in buds, do you tell them what you just told us? about the fact that it's, these are the qualities and characteristics we look for, or are you just looking for the people that already have those qualities and characteristics to bubble up to the top? Like how much training, are you, you know, are you observing? Are you coaching them saying no bitching in the boat? I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I'll tell you personally, and when guys show up and they've made it to buds, there's such a, we, and we haven't even really talked about this, but there's such a pathway to get there, right? Like if you've gotten there, you've made it through what, um, even with today's pipeline, the way it works, you've gotten through a series of hoops just to make it to day one. And and there's a lot of quitting before even day one, there's like six or seven weeks of quals and testing at a minimum to, to get to day one. And so when, when guys get to day one, I don't, I want to see people that have it intrinsically, uh, an intrinsic motivation to succeed. If I have to draw that out of them, it's typically a, a losing scenario for them. Well, and Jake, to, to add to that, 
Buds, it's challenging because I've always wanted to be a coach. I want to coach these young, these young men. But Buds is like the kind of the selection side of the house where it's uh, fair but tough. Um, I was a SEAL qualification instructor, but occasionally I would support um, the Hell Weeks, first phase Hell Weeks. But SEAL qualification is the coaching. SEAL qualification is they they have made it through selection. It's over. They graduate. Now they come over to us and we have to qualify them and all the skill sets that it, that it takes to be a SEAL. Everything from, from shooting to land navigation to di diving, closed circuit, oxygen, rebreathers. Um, but we coach. Again, we're fair but tough. But I'm, that's where I thrived. I love coaching. I love helping them learn how to be a better SEAL, be a better person. And uh, that's a very different approach from like first phase yeah. first you know there's three phases first second and third and first phase is where they have the core of the selection that's where hell week is homed and you're not really there to coach them you're th let the process work itself out let the sand get where it's going to hurt let the water get where it's going to make you cold because really we don't want the person to quit I, I and we don't want the person to quit but i don't want the quitter to make it because mm -hmm. the job is really mm -hmm. tough it is tough um, it's tough. It's cold. It's um, it's challenging, and we want we want the right person. We want that gritty person. Robin, what are the physical requirements prior to even starting buds? I I did study this a little bit prior to today's interview. I'm just curious. It's a certain number well, of pull-ups, and uh, you have to run a mile in a certain amount of time, and sit-ups, stuff like that, right? Um, yeah, and honestly, I hadn't been through buds since 1998, so it's it's been a while. And the the, the the standards have kind of ebbed and flowed, but it's really not that challenging. It is, I think, at boot camp to advance forward, to be selected, to start contracting you to go to buds. I think it was like eight pull-ups and a mile and a half in boots. We can do that. So that's, I think that's the, the point that <laughs> a lot, in a row, I think it, <laughs> Sorry. That's what gets lost in translation though, is I think a lot of folks think of SEALs as uh, superhuman. They're not, they're, Jake and I are like, Jake's and I are just, not big people by any stretch of the imagination. I'm 5'10", 180 pounds. Um, Jake's shorter than me. We're just normal. We're your your neighbors and your your brothers and your husbands. It's just they're average guys with an un unwillingness to fail. Um, that's why the, the the standards they're not that tough. But when you put it over six eight months over and over and every morning starts at five or 4.30 and you're always cold and you're always wet and there's no room for injuries. You can't, if you get injured, it's not gonna work out so well because those times always get shorter or the runs get longer with a shorter duration. So each phase has its own re requirements for uh, runs, three mile time runs and obstacle courses and open water ocean swims. Those times the distances get longer and the times get shorter. None of them are unattainable. Theoretically, I could give you guys the times for third phase, the end of buds. And we, if you isolated each one of these, this three mile time run, yeah, you'd be like, okay, that's, that's not that hard. But accompany it with five, six months prior to that of just going, getting little sleep, getting crushed physically, mentally, emotionally, and having to show up every morning and tell yourself you're already shaking. The day hasn't even started and you're already tired. Um, so it's it's not like these isolated little sections that are challenging. Put it all together. The holistic buds holistically is such a beast. But 
it's not, it doesn't take a, an Olympian. And actually, I've seen Olympians do, quit, buds. Yeah, we've seen that, wow. that's the thing. You picture the these, yeah. these big bodybuilder type guys, they're, they're big, like a big tight end from whatever college. They statistically don't work out because they have more mass to get from A to B or A to Z. Mm. When you're mm. running, um, I don't remember the stats anymore, but like an average day of buds, you're running take what like 10 12 miles you run uh, you run at least six miles a day just to eat you have to run a mile to eat and then a mile back and so regardless it's six miles a day and then if you throw on a timed run now you're at 10 you throw on a conditioning run you're at 12 miles a day wow. um not including all then that doesn't count as like your physical training for the day that's just part that's of the business. that's yeah. just part of the business Wow. I just listened to you guys talk and one in our business, one of the things we tell people to do is not chase being comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like it seems like our, our culture is going from our their comfortable worm, you know, massage bed and they want to get back there as fast as possible. Yeah. And they want to avoid anything that and like in uh, our business, agents will do everything in their power to uh, feel anything that even remotely resembles rejection. And so we tell them, and it's in our book, Harris Rules, we tell them if they don't, if they haven't put themselves in a position to hear the word no, at least five times a day, you know, no from a, a not from their wives or their kids or their dogs, but no from somebody who they're trying to do business yeah. with, they yeah, haven't yeah. done their job. And yeah, Julie yeah. and I enjoy saying that in front of groups of agents because the faces, they just go, they don't like it. They hate it, but yeah, that's yeah. the truth. And that's yeah. what you guys are describing. Yeah. And I really yeah. like what you said about what you, at the end of the day, you're looking for the person that has grit. Mm. I think that's a really great way of defining it because so many things in life are like that people yeah. that thrive and survive and are successful. Yeah. So um, how can you talk about this, this idea of being situationally aware? I know that's something in your training, we refer to it from time to time. You know, we'll say that to each other when we're, you know, maybe in a town that we're not familiar with or driving sure. somewhere. Can you talk a little bit about that, both in terms of your SEAL training and instructing, but also how to apply it in day-to-day -day life? Yeah. From, from an operational standpoint, we, you know, we, we go to a new region, we go to somewhere that we're typically maybe have never been or are not familiar with, you know, and the Middle East or you, you name it. Um, and the simplest form, we, we have this thing where you get into a new area and we call it um, SILS, stop, look, listen, smell. And so you get dropped off into an area and, and you just, you know, given circumstances are correct, you give yourself a moment to soak in your environment. You're stopping, you're looking, you're listening, um, you're smelling, just absorbing your environment to be situational aware to what's going on around you. Um, we have a ton of a ton of data that supports like how how effective that can be as far as like application for everyday life it's something that we teach a situational awareness training um and a very practical application and a lot of people walk out of our courses saying like okay i'm never going to walk through the parking lot anymore with my airpods in and my face and my cell phone because of all that's going on around me um situational aware is really using the natural senses that we've been born with and, and using them to our advantage. Like if you're in the grocery store with your family and you see a commotion or something going on down the aisle, part of that is being situational aware where you're not walking through the store with staring at your phone and not being aware of that. Where it's like, no, I have my kids. You know what? We're actually gonna, we're gonna leave the store and we're gonna go this way or I'll, I'll just go around the aisle here. It's thinking upstream and avoiding compromising situations by just keeping our eyes and ears open. 
What do you mean by thinking upstream, Jake? Yeah, Robin, Robin, you um, want to chime in on that? The upstream thinking is just like, if we are right here in the river and here's the problem, let's always be thinking, you know, a couple meters upstream so you have the ability to react. If you're always thinking right here, you're not postured to react appropriately. So if you're down and in, this is what most people are today because of the invention of the smartphone. People, one, are not experiencing life anymore. Like when you just drive down the road, uh, every car is doing this in and out of their lane. Everyone is looking down at their phone, looking across the street. Everyone is down and in at their phone. So one, they're not experiencing life, but they're really setting themselves up for potential failure. Um, and we're not talking about, we don't want people to be paranoid, but if you're up and out and enjoying life, you have the ability to see, okay, I see you know, two blocks away. I mean, I could use an analogy from the SEAL teams. There's a burning trucks and there's a bunch of guys with guns. Well, maybe we turn here. So that's that upstream thinking. I'm a couple blocks away before I get downstream. I don't want to get there and make a decision. I want to be assessing my environment and making the best decision as fast as possible. And the best way to do that is being up and out. Live life. That's what we really just advocate. It's like, yes, I, I love my phone. I want to, I'm addicted to it. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to break my addiction. But if you can take your head up and out of it, one, you can see more and experience more life, but you're prepped to react. Um, it's just like the analogy we always use is if you're you're in a restaurant and you notice it, there's only there's a north entrance and a south entrance. And in the north entrance comes an aggressive, I don't want to disparaging like a big motorcycle gang that's obviously set to do some destruction we'll leave leave get out the back door there's no need we don't fight like that whole like roadhouse era of getting in a Patrick Swayze bar fight is ridiculous recognize what's going on and be humble enough and mature enough to be like oh we probably should leave and that's upstream thinking or preventative thinking and it's just really it's just experiencing life is what what we we push for well, there's practical things too, right? So you don't want anything in your hands. You don't want your hands in your pockets. Right. You want to be thinking about what kind of shoes you're wearing, right? In case yeah. you have to run, you know, so, so things like that. And that, that is a fascinating thing. It's so, um, it, it, people have this ego attachment to not fleeing, but fleeing is almost always the best alternative, isn't it? Opposed to conflict. Because even right. if you're a, yeah. even if you're, say, for example, a badass Navy SEAL like you two guys, you're still going for the exit because the probability of you getting hurt, you know, that's something that's fascinating. Well, why deal with it if you don't have to? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so another practical application too, like gas stations, right? People, you know, obviously more people going to electric cars and this and that, but just from a an overall life standpoint, if my car is low on gas, I'm going to like, ideally I fill up at a good gas station in the middle of the day rather than, Hey, it's late at night. I'm a, um, I'm a woman by myself or even a man by myself. I'm going to go, I'm not going to stop at that dark gas station in the middle of the night in the neighborhood that I probably shouldn't stop in. Like avoiding putting yourselves in those compromising positions is or Jake, the true. very simple ones are the ATM. Yeah. Where you can just Google search this stuff and you'll find we, cause we teach, we use real life photos from stuff we find on the internet, but you know, someone being just down and in and they're just so not aware. And again, it's not being paranoid. It's just being aware. If I walk up to an ATM in a dark alley, all the lights are out and you, you, you know, you see someone sitting behind the car two feet away, maybe you just keep walking. Um, or 
you know, just it's it's just very simple. You know, be aware of what people are doing, and we also have a lot of other things too, like watching people too. Um, you know, if you see someone constantly nervous and touching their face, these are indications of nervousness. Especially if you're at like an ATM and they keep touching their waist, that's printing. They're typically a gun going to be in that waist. People do things when they're comfortable. They don't do the, the facial touches and it, uh, they don't constantly looking over their shoulder or something like that. And we, these are things we teach in these courses we have, but there's some very specific telltales to something is probably going to happen. And this is where try not to use the ATM at night in the alley. Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with some very, yeah, I mean, here in Puerto Rico, when we moved to Puerto Rico, the one of the first things that the locals told us is I told Jake this too. You don't stop at stop. I mean, we're, we're from Ohio and we're super boring and we're rule followers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So here they said, don't at night, don't stop at stop signs. Don't stop, stop at red lights. Yeah. Don't go to gas stations at night. And we live in a, a relatively Pretty safe civilized. part of Puerto Rico, yeah. but yeah. that's just, they've just, they just, you know, that's, those are the rules. And I'm sure that's, frankly, the way of most of the, the world is anymore. You know, when you travel, you got to really be taking the, and you always want to be careful that you're not getting boxed in when you come up to a red light, right. you know, you want to leave space and, and you see the Puerto Ricans actually, they do that. They they'll don't close get close the gap. The, well, well, they'll close the, the gap behind you, but they won't, they'll leave a space, you know, in front of them. So if they had to get out of there, that they could, you know, it's not being, it's being smart, but right. I think that, I think you're right with, all of our devices, it's so easy to, to subconsciously not be smart and aware, Yeah, you know, because it's ringing or it's buzzing or, you know, we're late for an appointment or an alarm goes off or whatever. Yeah, And so it's something that I have worked on with our being out and about, especially when we're out with family and just, you know, trying to be more aware. And I remember when my dad was teaching me to drive way back when, and, and he put me through, so he, he would say, okay, what's the color of the car behind you? You know, and that I will always remember that, like, I wasn't really paying attention to that. How many car lengths are they from, from you? Just like yeah. basic survival things. Um, so I, I think that the world really needs to get back to a lot of that and we would all be in better shape, but, yeah. you know, kind of a mindset question for you. How do you manage fear when it's real fear? Like some of the things that you guys have been through on your real deployments versus the daily fear that we all feel bubble up now and then. How do you control that when it's such a natural response that humans are programmed with? This is such Jake, a good let me, yeah, yeah, let me start with this one. And, yeah. and I know you can caveat uh, to okay. it, mm -hmm. but what we like to use essentially inoculation. Every, you're, someone is lying if they tell you they're not afraid, especially in combat. If you're flying onto the X, like landing right on bad guy land to rescue Princess Leia, it's mm -hmm. not it's it's not a natural feeling. Um, you're you have the drive to go there and get this hostage rescue done, but it's it's a lie if you're not really if there's not some level of fear. But how we we combat it, we inoculate ourselves to it by repetition. Perfect practice makes perfect. So not just practice makes perfect because our brains are simple computers. They're simple processing units. So encode into this brain uh, perfect repetition. So whatever your process is, if it is you know, a hostage rescue, you're gonna practice doing weapons drills, how to use a weapon system. So it's innate, it's innate knowledge. So you have all your bandwidth is towards making a good decision, not pulling this pistol out or using this gun, the functionality of your day-to-day -day life. You do thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of repetitions. So 
you don't have to think about the mundane. And I say it's mundane because it's just part of your job, carrying a weapon system or transitioning from a pistol to a rifle, all that stuff. So my point is we, we practice every aspect of a mission, whether it's from the insertion, whether we're taking helicopters in, we walk on and off them all the time. How to the best way to get on them, the best way to get off them. There's a correct order. When it lands, how do you get on and off this thing? Um, to every aspect of a mission from insertion, infiltration, to actions on the objective, all the way back out, you rep it out and rep it out and rep it out and talk about contingencies and talk about um, anything that can happen and then still expect the unexpected to happen. But that's really what we're talking about. You become such a well-oiled machine more often than not, you don't even remember the fear or the anxiety till you're back home and you're like, Whoa, that was a close one. Wow, that was a close one. Because you're you're not thinking about that little stuff because you have a mission to, uh, to accomplish. So that's why we're huge fans of practicing. Whatever it is you do, practice it, practice it, practice it. So all your bandwidth goes to making good decisions, not whatever the, the, the system is. And again, I, we can easily talk about drawing a pistol from a holster that doesn't resonate with like 99% of the population. But if you're not working on that, if you're not working on that, you're gonna actually look at your holster and then look at the pistol and start thinking about it when you're in a life or death situation. And I'd prefer if all things were equal and we all had 25 meg of bandwidth to use 25 meg to make a good decision. That pistol comes out of the holster innately because you've wrapped it out thousands of times. So it could translate into whatever it is you do. And that's how you inoculate your body for stress and fear. And then one other component is mindfulness. Um, being aware of your sympathetic nervous system, being aware of physiology that our bodies go through, that if you're not aware of it, it will, it will hijack you. So the phys physiology that Jake and I always worry about is sympathetic nervous system essentially fight flight kind of stuff. But when you're in a, in a life or death situation, what your body does, it goes through some, some really quick physiology. You get a huge dump of adrenaline, which causes you to breathe really quickly, which you get ocular occlusion, you get um, tunnel vision, you get mm -hmm. displaced time and time and space is completely displaced. Your hands get cold. You ever notice when you're nervous, why your yeah. hands get cold? That's an old, this is the, 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 the sympathetic nervous system saving you. It's all those, the blood in your extremities is pulling to your vital organs. It's just basic physiology that our bodies are still dealing with from you know living in the cave however many thousands of years ago when that saber-toothed tiger came to get us. But these are the things your body is dealing with and we want to be aware of that. So if you're aware in a, in a business meeting that my heart's racing and my hands are getting cold, oh my gosh, I've just engaged a sympathetic nervous system. Jake is getting to me, or this client has engaged my sympathetic nervous system, which historically is fight or flight. This is something that was engaged when we were being threatened with life or death. So the biggest takeaway is just take some deep breaths. Um, and you don't have to do it overt because you don't necessarily want your client to see this. Or for me on target yesteryear, I would just take a big, take like 40 breaths and you can coax yourself into being calm again. If you hum just a little, hmm, you can coax the vagal nerve to calm down and go into parasympathetic mode. You can't so control a, it once you're aware of it. You have if to you're aware, aware of it. it. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Opposed to yes. reacting to it. Yeah. yeah. Or letting it hijack you, letting right. these systems hijack mm -hmm. you because you're not aware. And the next thing you know, you're arguing with the client or you're arguing with your, my, my wife. And I'm like, how did that happen? My hands are freezing. I'm in the sympathetic nervous system. 
my heart rate is racing. Um, if just being aware of this stuff is the best way to prevent it from taking over and making a bad decision or saying something you regret a few minutes later. And Julie, I think your point earlier about how, you know, you talk to clients, you talk to folks that you guys deal with about wanting to be in these like ultra comfortable environments. And that's, that's the antithesis to recognizing being in these systems. Because the more often we make ourselves in uncomfortable situations, the more comfortable you become dealing with what Robin's talking about. And so it, it, it comes back to that discipline piece too, right? Like if I can be disciplined enough to put myself deliberately in these uncomfortable situations, and it doesn't even have to be crazy extreme scenarios, you're able to recognize the sympathetic nervous system and then control it so much easier because you're like, I've been, I've been uncomfortable before. This is how I do it. It's conditioning. You're conditioning your body to react better or appropriately. That's really interesting, but you have to be actively aware of that. You can't go through life complacently. You won't even notice when it's happening. Right. Or you'll think that's just normal. That's my normal freak out. That's what people right. do. You know, but I think it's really interesting that you, once you recognize it, and that, maybe that's the first thing is recognizing it. So then you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel it. I'm not a great fan of flying. I'm fine once we're up in the air, but like I, I get travel anxiety. So I, that's when I know for me, I've got to chill, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got to kind of go through that process. Um, and, you know, I was a musician. So some of our pre-concert training, we would do some of these things, but I think, you know, it's so easy to get away from that when you do your day-to-day routine and, you know, then something happens and, and you go into that freak out. So I think it's really key training just as a human being, what you mm-hmm. said, what both of you said. Well, what's really fascinating, Julie, what I learned was, so there's psychological fear and then there's like real fear. You guys have experienced real fear and you guys have experienced psychological fear, mm-hmm. but the way it manifests is exactly the same, like what Robin just said. And so what you guys have been able to do is you've been able to take real fear and apply the same tactics that we teach our coaching clients to get past their fear of hearing no. Yeah, because so, you know the, the, phys- the reaction is the same. Yeah, right? the physical physiological reaction is the same. But that's that's awesome. So you guys, you got yeah, I will. You guys, this is a whole chapter in our book, and yeah. you now we're gonna say endorsed by Robin and Jake. <laughs> awesome. Um, talk to us about like if you had each of you had three most significant things that you Stand learned closer. as a seal that you do use in daily life. We try to make uh, our listeners have practical, tactical things that they can apply. Most of the, I, we do have a few, maybe so you have a coaching client that's a sealer. No, he was, he was an ex uh, Marine fire pilot. Okay. Well, yeah. but most of our clients are not. So can you make it practical? I think the situational awareness that we talked about is certainly one of those, but what else do you maybe do daily that you got from your seal training that we can all use? Yeah. I think they show, one, up, they show up early. Show yeah. up on time. These are the only yeah. two guys we've yeah. ever interviewed. That aren't late ever so they definitely <laughs> there's one <laughs> yeah. that's yeah i mean time is time is critical i think one one big thing that we that was in in our community is we would talk about reputation is your currency and just your ability to perform and to be a man of your word um is so important right if you say you're going to do something do it be on time just the, the simple stuff but you you know, you start to take that stuff for granted when, when you start to see like, oh, that actually is pretty valuable. But I think going back to the beginning of the conversation, the, the grit, like when Robin and I were first starting our, our business and kind of mapping out the plan that we're going to do, we went back to 
look, man, whatever it takes, we're, we're going to put in the hours, we're going to put in the work and we're going to make this happen. And so I think that's one big piece for me that I've taken away and I really appreciate it is just, just the, we're going to make it work at all costs. You know what I mean? Like belief and having just a strong, strong sense of, of drive to, to succeed. Um, another thing for myself that, that, that really helped um, that I've taken from the community was we really drilled down on the why, the why of anything. And that's, that's, um, you know, our, our forward facing company is fortified risk group, but our, our umbrella company is, is Genesis action resources. And we, Genesis comes from the why, like, why do we do anything? And Simon Sinek has a great uh, YouTube video on, on the why, but as an instructor and as an operator, you have to ask yourself, like, why, why am I here today? Like, why am I selecting students? Why am I deploying? Why is, what's my mission? What's my personal philosophy to, to accomplishing any of this? And at the end of the day, uh, kind of like what we started with, my why was, I, I think we live in the, in the greatest country in the world, and I want to continue to support, defend, protect freedom, allow future generations to have a better um, life, or at least continue the freedom that we have. And how do we do that? Well, I think there's, you know, there's good and evil in the world and, and good people have to stand up against that and fight against that. And that's, that's what it came back to me. So when we go back to, is this guy worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder downrange with my brother and protecting him? That was, that was my why. So the grit and just really understanding why we do something is, is kind of what I've taken out of the, the community. And, and so one more thing, Jake, that, that we really use to every single day that we use in the SEAL teams is this uh, brutal honesty. Or so classically, when you go on a mission, the second you come home, regardless of how dire things may be, some people may be going to the emergency room, some people may be going to the morgue, some people, you get back to base, you put your radio on charge, you make sure your weapons are all loaded, and you go into the office, the entire team gets together, and we do what's called an AAR or a post-op, post after action review. And we are brutally honest, regardless of how successful the mission was or how bad the mission went. But you go from Z back to A, isolate every single aspect of that mission, identify what went right. And did it go right because we were lucky or because we trained to it? Um, and then can we replicate that? Great. What went wrong? Was it because of negligence? Was there a single point of failure that we didn't identify in training? Eradicate that. Then we praise in public, we scorn in private. If someone needs to be scorned in public, there better be a good reason for it, but hold people accountable. And we use this for everything, everything. Because if you just finish whatever product it is um, and you're just like, great, and we don't talk about it, well, you, you don't fix anything. And classically you stagnate. So instead of constantly growing and growing and growing, you plateau and it turns into stat in, in the tactical world. If you stagnate, that is that can be really bad. Stagnation, just assuming that you're good to go, getting complacent, really can end up in a really, really bad way. So it worked in the in our community, it still works today. And it's it's just having that humility to take criticism, being humble enough to always be a student and willingness to, to criticize each other. We do it all the time, not to be mean. Um, and there's a time and place, you know, like if, if it was myself and my command master chief, I don't scream at him. 
he was always willing to take criticism, you know, use good order and discipline, but hold each other accountable. You know, if someone went left and they should have gone right, we'll call them out on it, so to speak. And it will, it will always allow you to grow. There's always room for growth. And there's always the opposite. There's always time for stagnation if you're not careful. And stagnation is super dangerous in our old life. And I think using, using these processes allows us to always provide good services for our clients. Um, and it always allows us to be brutally honest with each other to, to grow. And that it helps so much. Tell us about your company. So it's called Fortified Risk. Jake mentioned it. Um, you know, we talked about being situationally aware. We talked about the problem with becoming complacent, you know, uh, so how does being lack of situational awareness and complacency equals problems for most people, even on a, you know, a, a normal, normal person level, if they go to the gas station the wrong time of night or some sort of executive or celebrity. So could you guys describe to the listeners what fortified risk is all about? Absolutely. So we have, at the end of the day, our company keeps people safer. That's our, that's our goal. That's our mission. We, we work with high net worth folks that have profiles, public profiles or private um, lives that require a certain amount of security. So we'll come in and do, we start at the top and just do a, a full threat assessment of their, their public profile, their digital profile, their risk profile. And then we, we fill from what we identify from that threat assessment, we then bring solutions to play. And that could be everything from um, additional training, like we can do situational awareness training. We do it one-on-one. -on -one. We'll do it in corporate environments as well. We'll train security teams. We'll train executive protection teams. We'll bring in the right cameras, access control systems. We'll, we'll get in, in line with their management team and help with HR policies, like how are you hiring? How are you firing people to really just bring that bring that holistic solution. Um, so, and then the other verticals, we do have a private security force as well, where we operate executive protection agents and we operate infrastructure, you know, uniformed guards at a handful of locations as well. Um, and so where, where we found, I think a lot of success is there's kind of a big unknown in the industry of if I just spend more money, maybe I get a, a better product. And, and we've been able to come into some of these corporations and some of these high net worth folks' lives and say, you either don't have enough in place or you, or you don't have what's right in place or you're, or you're actually completely overspending. Let us help They're you being ripped better, off. Yeah, let us help you get a better product for the, right, for the right price so that you, your company, your assets are safer. So who's your ideal customer? Like maybe you can give us a, you can make it up, Jake, right? But give us like a profile of someone that hired you guys that you chose to work for because it's, yeah. I'm sure it's mutual. It's not just yeah. someone who wants to do business with you. You want to do business with them too. Right. Because you're going to become part of these people's lives. Yeah. I'll give you two. I'll give you a, like a personal example and then a, a corporate example, if you will. Um, and a, a public one now known, you know, Ben Shapiro um, is a client of ours. He, he did some, um, gave us a little plug on his podcast not too long ago and he has a very up-and-coming company and we've come in and we've just transformed their entire security profile from the way that all of their talent travels around the united states around the world we provide that entire security package as they move and then corporately we've stepped in and we've gotten in lockstep with their hr to make sure that again they're hiring they're firing that their that entire process is as clean and as secure as, as possible. 
and then their infrastructure. They have offices around the United States. We've made sure that their offices are manned appropriately with the security that's needed, that their cameras are correct, that their access control is correct, and that they're not um, getting ripped off by anybody. So we've integrated with them um, at the highest level. And then from a, from a personal high net worth person, we've, we've had clients bring us in and say, hey, these are kind of some of the problems I'm dealing with. I don't know who to trust. I don't know, do I, do I need a full-time security guard or, or should I just get cameras? Should I do this? Should I do that? And so again, we'll come in, we do an entire threat vulnerability assessment on these people. So we'll pull their entire digital footprint. We'll pull their physical footprint. Like what, what is forward facing on these people and what is at risk? And then we come back to them with like a written deliverable and we show them like, here's, here's like maybe social security numbers and EINs that are vulnerable right now. Here are, here's your address, here's your other properties and, and these states that, that are publicly known. So if, if you are concerned about this, we can help you put a defense around this. If you do have frequent travel that's taking you from state to state or out of the country, we'll build that security team for you. And so that's, that's how we've helped high net worth folks. So what type of security threats, for example, would um, your typical customer, not like Ben Shapiro, right? I mean, he's completely on a different level, mm-hmm. but, it, but a normal executive type that's coming to you and they're, you know, they, that. So what is, what, they don't have any physical threats necessarily. You know, they're not dealing with all the things that say, for example, Ben deals with, mm-hmm. but how would you, what would you, what would you kind of the prescription to make them? Like maybe live? what don't they know that they should be worrying about? Right. Thank yeah, I think, no, a great, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I think what we're experiencing right now is the, the digital world is, is so available, right? With dark web, what's on the black market, you can, you can become a really good hacker right now for not much money and not um, much training, really. And you can actually get into pretty, you can get into systems that you probably think you shouldn't get into. And so if you're, if you're a high net worth individual, a corporate executive that works for a company that is maybe polarizing politically or um, just has variable, uh, a fair amount of competition around it, um, what we do is we'll, we'll come in and we'll say, we can run this threat vulnerability analysis from your digital footprint alone and say here, like I was mentioning earlier, like your residences are here, your EINs are here, your social security's actually out here. Um, what are you using to protect your digital content? Like if you're traveling all the time, is your, is your cell phone exploitable? Is your computer safe? Uh, and so we can run a full analysis on that and see um, if there are threats hitting, hitting them like that. What would be a threat for people? I mean, having their yeah. information stolen for the sake of hacking and getting to bank accounts, or mm-hmm. is it a threat, a physical threat, or what? Like, so if you can define kind of what are the what the ranges? Yeah, what the ranges? Yeah, it, it, it's a full spectrum. I mean, we have we have st- stuff where we have clients where we're running social media monitoring, right? And there will be people that say, "Let's find out where this person lives because we want to go." do X, Y, and Z. We want to go bring harm to this person. So that's like on the physical side, but that's where physical and digital meet because the adversary is using a digital platform to meet a physical threat, right? Or to go carry out a physical threat. So with that, we can say to our client, well, here are the protocols we can put in place so that they can't find your address. And then separately, let's let's run um, 
a background check on these people searching these threats, see if there's a criminal record, report it to law enforcement so we can capture it from both, both sides. Interesting. Yeah. The other piece too is that, uh, that really just shoring up contemporary physical security. You'd be surprised how many folks today have the net worth that it's very inexpensive. It's like, what is your security worth? Uh, it's a challenge, you know, like if you can just, if you can just put some contemporary aesthetically pleasing um, layers of security, you can significantly change your posture. And we're not talking about putting machine gun nests and barbed wire around your house. We're talking about like very strategically placed planters. You know, my mom could hit the gas instead of the brake and end up in your living room if you don't have things oriented appropriately or your office could be vulnerable. My father-in-law's doctor office, like once a month, it seems like a patient hits the gas instead of the brake. So strategically placing like ballers or a beautiful tree in a planter that is designed with a robust concrete base that you can't tell as a, as a you know, proprietor, but it's aesthetically pleasing, it's beautiful. Um, and just all these different things you can put, a, a staircase here, um, something to just change the approach for an, a, a, an actual adversary or someone accidentally doing something to your to your structure, and it's it's not it's not that hard. But there is there's very contemporary stuff out there, and that industry is kind of always changing. And it's a it's it's something we really at, at a fundamental level like to introduce to our clients. You know, you should have some very fundamental physical security, and you'd be surprised how many don't. So Jake, if someone wants to engage with you guys, are you, what's like, what's the threshold client for you? So you're going to get a lot of attention and a lot of maybe some of the attention and some of the business that will come from this is not for you guys. So help them to understand if they can engage with you at, you know, where, where's the cutoff? Do you have some sort of like pre-qualification, pre-qualification right? And using sales terms. Sure. I will tell you, we are not the right fit for a lot of people. It is a very unique niche kind of client and market that we work with. Um, that being said, we do talk to a lot of people and and see if we can help them in some way, in some form or fashion. Our cutoff is a lot of people hear what we do. And then just by hearing it, they're like, yeah, I probably I'm not going to pay for that or I don't fit that profile. Um, if you do, if you do think you are interested in it, I mean, initially that that qualification, reach out to us. We have that that landing page where we can get your information at fortifiedrisk.com. Um, but typically it's, it is a high net worth individual or someone that, that either is currently paying for security and says, I might be overpaying for it, or I think I might need this, but I'm not sure how to take these next steps. Or separately, we found a lot of benefit with corporations that are, they're up and coming, like they're at their, they're meeting that 50, 100, 150, 200 person employee um, payroll, and, but they're growing, like they're going to double that or triple that. And they're like, we, we don't have security measures in place to help us, help us grow into that corporate security structure that we need because of X, Y, and Z. Those are, those are a lot of the, the pre-qualifications that we've found um, are helpful, whether it's from a corporate side or, or from a, a personal side. So fortifiedrisk.com is the pathway for them to have conversations with you guys. Yes. So the last question we have for you, and this is uh, an interesting question. Okay. Uh, if, you could leave, if you could leave us, Jake and Robin, eat both of you guys, because it's interesting how much you guys say the same thing, but distinctly different, different ways. ways. It's very yeah. fascinating. So if you guys could leave us with one piece of advice, what would it be? 
Big <laughs> <laughs> question. It's a great question. Uh, no, they can they can think on it. They're gonna ponder. It's gonna be really well, it good. It doesn't have like, to be one. Necessarily. Hold on. Let's wait. Yeah. This is really good. Let's we'll put the put pressure on. on. Let's see yeah. if we let's see if we can create some fear. Yeah. <laughs> I think they can handle it. Some, my fingers are getting cold. My hands are cold. That's us because the air conditioning's yeah, off. No, yeah. us. I would go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I, I would go. I would go back to earlier when we were saying, like, what did you take from the community or what did you take from the teams, uh, the, the SEAL teams? For for me, it's it's always going back to the why, going back to the genesis. If you're in sales, if you're selling homes or mortgage broker or, you know, thinking of your audience, I would always ask yourself, like, why are you doing what you're doing? And then just like continue to peel that onion back and peel it back and peel it back until you get to the core. Like, keep asking why until you're like, that's it. So if you're like, why are you selling real estate? Well, to make a lot of money. But but why do you want to make a lot of money? Well, because I want to go on vacation and buy this house and provide for my kids. But but like, why? Why do you want to go on vacation and provide for your kids and have that nice house? And like, peel it back. Like, what's that? Is it legacy? Is it something that you, you want to leave behind? Um, and so that would be what I'd leave. That, that's my biggest piece of advice because it, it helps keep me focused when it was in the SEAL teams working on deployment, working on a mission, like, why am I doing this? I knew I was doing it because I believed in our mission to the fullest, to protecting life, to protecting freedom, and to allow that to go on for generation after generation so that my kids could have that, so that the, you know people listening to this, your kids could have that, and we can continue to allow that to exist on this earth. That was my why. And in our company today, it's the same thing. We want to keep people safe. We want to provide the, the option if someone needs help like that's what that's what we're here for to keep people safe and jake to add to the why not only like the theoretical why do i do what i do but even just boiling it down to simple processes why do you do that process the way yeah. you do it you should always be analyzing the process and it goes back to if it's always been the way we do it well that is my one of my two least favorite answers it's because i was told to do it that way or we've always done it that way they're the worst because whatever industry you're in, it will always be adapting. It will always be evolving. So you should always be assessing your, yourself and your systems and asking, why do we do it this way? Because there may be another way. There may be a more efficient way. If you can, if you do something and it requires three steps, but you could do it in two, my gosh, you're now one third faster on target or to that client or to that end state. And that's what we're always doing, assessing why are we doing what we're doing? Can we better be better or more efficient? That's awesome. One, one piece to the why, and it, it might be too much info, but I go back to the money thing because a lot of times I, I feel like from a real estate or some type of professional environment, it's like, oh, I just want to make more money. There was a time in SEAL training where if you made it through Hell Week, you got an extra $40,000 as a student. And there was all this like, oh, we're going to do it. We want to get, we want to see if we can get more students through without changing the standards. And so if you made it through Hell Week, you made an extra $40,000. Numbers did not go up. Like mm -hmm. more people did not make it through Hell Week with this like $40,000 carrot dangling in front of them. And I think that goes back to the why, because you're not there for the money. You're there for something much bigger than that. So Jake, out of the SEAL team, you said, I'm going to drill down on this and peel the layers. Yeah. 
coming back since you started it, right? Yeah. So, so your why now is, is the same as it was when you were a SEAL, but has it evolved? Has it changed? Or you, is your mission still basically the, uh, you know, protecting people in the country? Is Now you have family. I think you have three kids, right? I do. Has your has your personal why changed as you've gotten older and as you think life experiences have, that you've had has it become more defined? At its core, it's it's still the same, right? As I look back at, I, I went into the Navy right out of high school, and and I didn't know that I had that why in me at the time, but I but I did, but I realized that you know years years later, but I'd say at its core, it's the same. I just I want I want to provide for my family. I want to give them that environment and the ability to, to protect as well, to spread, to spread truth, protect life and freedom. It's really, as long uh, as it's in line with a moral, a, a calibrated moral compass. That's yeah. what we, that's like our foundation is we will always, we just, there's a lot of folks out there that do things for the dollar and it lets them dictate kind of their, their morality and we're firm believers in doing the right thing because it's right. So Jake and I refine and make sure our compass is calibrated every, every month or every morning almost. Make sure we're giving our client what they ask. Make sure that I'm giving my wife what she asks. Am I gone too much? Am I missing my son's birthday? It's got to be a happy medium between getting the, the, the product to the client and keeping my family happy and doing everything in line with a moral compass. Do the right thing because it is right. Yeah, Hard I to love argue it. With that. Yeah, that's the perfect <laughs> way to end it, Robin. Jake, don't yeah. try to top that. That was good. <laughs> you both are great. <laughs> Guys, listen, this we has really been a true honor it. for us. And frankly, we could go on for hours because we only got through really half of our questions, but we wanted to give enough time to talk about fortified risk. So if they want more information and maybe they're some, they're maybe one degree or two degrees away from somebody or just curious, they can go to Fortified Risk and they can learn about the services that you guys provide. I suspect from this podcast, and I'm sure I'll be invited to other podcasts as well, um, that you guys might be figuring out how to come out with some sort of digital product or your own podcast or a book where, you know, normal folks can um, benefit, right, and benefit from the um, edge, from learning how to enhance their personal security. Robin talked about that, you know, lights, locks, and, you know, situationally aware. There's a lot of different, I think there's an enormous demand right now, um, you know, all over but the even country. Even a basic guide for normal people, you know, mm-hmm. that, that just, they don't know what they don't know, but if you do these five or 10 things, this is a start to at least become aware. So, and I, you know, I probably got that just from you guys today and, yeah. and we really appreciate that. You, you know, if somebody's not ready to go into full-blown security, but there are things that they need to be aware of. Right. Exactly. Well, so, guys, listen, it was a true honor. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. This, this, was a highlight. So much for having us. this was a highlight for Julie and I, for sure. uh, um, after, uh, probably 5,000 podcasts and over 20 million downloads and that's 20 million downloads in maybe the last four years. That's not, you know, wow. that's, yeah. So this is the, for us personally, this was a true honor and I sincerely appreciate it. And guys, Absolutely. honestly, God bless you. And thank you for your service to our country. It's incredible for us just to call you guys friends. Yeah. It's, thank it's, you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.